Women's Fight Back, date 8th of the 3rd, 2020. Page 1. Strength and Audacity We Have Never Before Known by Jill Mountford. Quote, the Ford women have definitely shaken the women of the country. From Rose Bolland, one of the leading women in the equal pay strike at Ford Dagenham in 1968. Quote, we have achieved more in six weeks than the politicians and trade unions have in years. From Mary Dennis, one of Headscarf Revolutionaries, who changed health and safety laws for fishermen working on the trawler ships in Hull, 1968. Quote, it felt like the culmination of something. It didn't feel like the absolute beginning. Sally Alexander, in an interview 20 years on from the first Women's Liberation Conference in 1970. Sally was one of the two main organisers of the conference, a trade unionist at the time studying at Ruskin College, Oxford. A movement is born. Sally Alexander is right. The first Women's Liberation Conference, as Sheila Robottom claims, is the moment when a movement could be said to exist. But it wasn't the beginning. Much had happened in the 1960s, a time of rapid cultural, social and, to a lesser extent, political change to make this conference the next logical step in the battle for women's equality and liberation. The organisers were hoping for a 100 or so women to take part, but all in all, 500 people attended the conference. At the end of a weekend of discussion and debate, four fundamental demands were formulated for the new women's liberation movement. Equal pay, equal education and opportunity, 24-hour nurseries and free contraception and abortion on demand. These summed up what the participants considered to be the essential foundation for women's liberation. Sheila Rowbottom wrote in Women's Resistance and Revolution 1972, Women's liberation brings to all of us a strength and audacity we have never known before. This was expressed in many ways, but most powerfully in the struggles led by working class women during the period. Working class women fighting back. The 1970 conference was inspired by the Ford Dagenham machinist strike for equal pay in 1968. Following three weeks of striking, the women won a significant pay rise, though not yet equal pay. The strike helped set in motion the 1970 Equal Pay Act, as did Britain's obligation after joining the European Economic Community and the necessary condition of equal pay in the Treaty of Rome, Article 24. Another group of working-class women in Hull, Wives and girlfriends of trawlermen organised an incredible campaign for better health and safety for the fishermen after three trawler boat tragedies in early 1968. These women were tagged the headscarf revolutionaries after they set up the Hessel Road Women's Committee and drafted a health and safety fishermen's charter. In less than two weeks, they gathered 10,000 signatures. Big Lil Baloka led the campaign in the face of sexist abuse, harassment and even death threats. She lost her job and was blacklisted, but she didn't waver. She spent many freezing cold hours on the dock checking the ships for health and safety before they left the sea and was known to throw herself on the deck of ships that failed to comply with the fisherman's charter. Big Lil threatened, if I don't get satisfaction, I'll be at that Harold Wilson's private house until I do get satisfaction in some shape or form. Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister, eventually met with Big Lil and agreed to all of the Charter's demands. 
The Hessel Road Women's Actions Committee made national headlines, even for a short period, knocking the Vietnam War off the front pages. Rowbottom describes how small women's groups and action committees like this mushroomed following the first women's equality demonstration on International Women's Day in 1971. The WLM was started by and remained dominated by socialist feminists. Women who were part of the labour movement even went critical of its failings. The Night Cleaners Mary Hobbs, a working-class feminist and trade unionist, cleaned offices for a living and set up the Cleaners Action Group with the goal of unionising night cleaners, low-paid, precarious workers. She approached other women to help, such as Dalston Women's Liberation Workshop, and before long, Sheila Robottom and Sally Alexander were among her recruits. The campaign ran from 1970 to 1973. It was something socialist feminists were directly involved in, and, as Robottom says, it was part of a wider attempt to foreground women workers and challenge trade union complacency about women's subordination. In less than two years, the Cleaners Action Committee had unionised more than 75% of the women cleaners, but the T and GWU officials remained indifferent and elusive. The indifference and dismissiveness shown by the trade union bureaucracy to this struggle, sadly something all too familiar today, meant a number of women involved turned away from class politics and the labour movement. The Trico Strike The 1976 Trico Strike is all too often forgotten about, overshadowed by the mammoth Battle of Grunwick, which started three months later in the same year. It was a battle for equal pay and a test for the new law passed in 1970, but not enforced until 1975, which had given employers five years to find ways round the law. Trico bosses thought they'd cracked it after implementing a segregated workforce with men on the night shift and women on the day shift doing the same job for different rates of pay. When five men joined the day shift and 400 women discovered the injustice, the battle began. After 21 weeks of strike action, the women won, despite their bosses taking the dispute to tribunal. The women in their union decided to ignore the tribunal, instead organising round-the-clock picket lines. The strikers could see that they were part of a broader movement, a bigger struggle. One woman striker said, We're carrying the rod for all women, let's see it through to the end. A victory for us will be a victory for all women, so we have to win. In one of the strike bulletins, they argued, we are tired of hearing that if they have to pay women more, they they will have to lay lay men off. You can't divide and rule us, and we shall say to the world, our movement won for us these rights, and nobody will take them away from us. United, we will never be defeated. It is worth taking stock of what we have lost over the past four decades. This 21-week dispute was started by a show of hands. The women were uninhibited by postal ballots, thresholds or restrictions on the number of pickets. This alone does not explain the strike's success and significance, but it does show us how we are fighting today with one hand tied behind our back. The Grunwick Dispute In the summer of 1976, the Grunwick strike began. Many of the strikers had recently arrived from Uganda following a purge of its Asian minority. It was widely assumed that they would be compliant and desperate workers, house-trained to work in poor conditions for bad pay. Nothing was further from the truth. Led with immense determination and dignity by Jayabin Desai, this dispute lasted two years, peaking in the summer of 1977 with a picket line of 20,000. The dispute was ultimately lost after their union and the TUC withdrew support. It was a pivotal movement for the labour movement, which demonstrated to trade union bureaucrats and bureaucrats and employers alike 
that the militancy of the early 70s could be suffocated and no doubt gave great inspiration to the Tory Ridley report team who were already drawing up plans to destroy the miners' union. The Grunwick dispute ended just weeks after the last ever WLM conference in June 1978. There were eight annual WLM conferences in total, with the last conference having 3,000 women taking part. As with any mass political movement, there were conflicts, arguments and debates, discord and sectarianism. At the second conference in 1971, some Maoist men and women tried to take over the Women's National Coordinating Committee, which had been set up at the 1970 conference, to coordinate things in between conferences. Socialist feminists and radical feminists united against this sectarianism, and the WNCC was abandoned in favour of a structureless, leaderless movement. The unity between those two strands of feminism did not last long. Soon a third strand, revolutionary feminism, raised its voice, asserting that capitalism was not the enemy, but men. At a revolutionary feminist conference in 1977, it was agreed that male supremacy is a system by which men as a class oppress women as a class. The 1978 WLM conference ended in conference ended in complete disarray. The socialist feminists organising the event were accused of purposefully leaving a revolutionary feminist proposal off the agenda, which called for the abolition of the now six demands passed at the 70, 74 and 77 conferences, arguing it was absurd to demand anything from a patriarchal state, from men who are the enemy. The plenary descended into further bitter rows when revolutionary feminists wanted to amend demand number six, an end to discrimination against lesbians and the right to a self-defined sexuality, by paring down the demand to an end to discrimination against lesbians and making the right to a self-defined sexuality just part of the general statement. Accounts of the conference report cacophonies of insults, slow hand clapping, the closing down of microphones and a group of revolutionary feminists congregating in the middle of the hall during the discussions to sing their war songs. In the aftermath, Spare Rib argued, we need more time together in order to grow. We need to keep on exchanging feminist ideas. Other socialist feminist press, such as Wires, were far more reluctant and pessimistic. One activist involved in Scarlet Women Editorial Board argued in 1979, Caught up in a great amount of work, we had little time to think about or develop theory about what we were doing. In less than a year, Britain would elect its first women Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She and her government would spend the next decade attacking every concession our class, women and men, had fought for and won. The women's movement was not dead, though. Green and women, and more importantly, women against pit closures, were part of a new generation of women that were creative, courageous, determined fighters. The legacy of second wave feminism, despite all the schisms and differences that developed, had a huge impact on the lives of women everywhere. It is now commonly accepted that men and women are equal, that women should receive the same pay as men for the same work. Women should have the same educational opportunities. Violence against women is unacceptable. Women should have control over our bodies and reproductive rights. And that people can self-define their sexuality, though less so their gender, a battle being fought now. These are widely accepted as our rights but remain some way off in reality. Moreover, the progress we have made is very much under threat with the growth of the populist right. As always, in times of economic crisis, it is working class women who suffer the most from cuts in pay, jobs and welfare. 
Our history, both first and second wave feminism, informs us that working class women, socialist feminists, can organise and fight back. We can develop our ideas, take up arguments and we can win. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 2020, page 4. As early as possible, as late as necessary, by Ruth Cashman. Our reproductive rights include the right to dignity, information and bodily autonomy and integrity in a world where so much of the framework of sexism has been control of women's sexuality, body and reproduction. Our right to make autonomous decisions about our body and reproduction is central to our right to physical and psychological integrity. We know that under capitalism there is a limit to the choice and control we have over reproduction, but we push for the greatest possible bodily autonomy. In some places we have seen steps forward in reproductive freedom, most recently announcement that Argentina is to legalise abortion. And yet our reproductive rights are a battleground and have and have been being pushed back in many countries. We have seen a reduction in both sexual health services and maternal and neonatal services. Austerity measures have, have, have fallen heaviest on those with caring responsibilities, meaning parenthood has become more demanding and we have seen attacks on abortion rights. In the US, the forces of reaction are pushing a range of measures designed to push back abortion rights and test Roe versus Wade. These include laws to effectively ban abortion in Alabama, Heartbeat bills meant to restrict the gestational limits for legal abortion to from six to eight weeks in Georgia, Missouri and Ohio, and reduction of limits by two weeks in Arkansas. Though the, there are fringes of the anti-choice movement who believe extreme legislation can overturn Roe and Wade, most see attempted bans and heartbeat laws as propaganda, whilst actually legal restriction will only be successful incrementally. This makes defending and extending gestational limits on legal abortion a key focus for us. Our demand should be abortion as early as possible and as late as necessary. Not only must we reject the rights demand that the first detectable heartbeat, electrical flickers in fetal tissue, be the cut-off, we, must, we also must reject the far more mainstream limits of fetal viability, currently estimated at approximately 24 weeks. The truth is that pregnancy and fetal development are a continuum, not a set of fixed stages, and fetal viability will change with technology and medical advances. With the development of artificial wombs which could save extremely premature babies and open real possibility for exogenesis, gestational limits based on clinical viability will leave us with a shrinking window in which to access abortion. The truth is that no meaningful distinction can be made between an abortion at five weeks and at seven weeks before and after the heartbeat bill cuts off. Most of those pushing for the restrictions are aware of this. They simply want to reduce the number of abortions by making accessing abortion more difficult. Is there any more convincing distinction between an abortion at 23 weeks and 25? Clinically, yes, but morally, no. The fetus gets bigger as the pregnancy continues, making the procedure more difficult and thus dangerous. This is why we want to ensure women can access abortion as early as they know they want one. Fetal viability may become relevant at the point we offer operations to transplant fetus from unwanted pregnancies into artificial wombs, but that is not what is currently up for debate. 
The question is, should we force the continuation of pregnancy? No, of course we shouldn't. Though philosophical and medical arguments on the start point of human life may sway us in our individual choices on whether to carry a pregnancy to term, they should not set legal limits. Nobody should be forced to stay pregnant against their wishes. I have the ability to tell the state my wishes for my organs after I die. If I don't want my organs, they are legally if I don't want my organs, they are legally bound by my decision, even if they could save another life. That means I have more of a say over my body after I've died than I do alive and pregnant. Take a moment to consider the horrible affront to bodily autonomy the idea of legally requiring the continuity of continuation of pregnancy is. We need abortion as early as possible and as late as necessary. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 20, page 5, Catholicism and Women's Rights. During the current Labour leadership election, Rebecca Long-Bailey admitted to holding religious objections to abortion rights based on her Catholicism. While this has not seemed to affect her voting record on this issue, it is concerning that many of the left were so quick to jump to the defence of um, Rebecca Long-Bailey and Catholicism in general, with some even painting those that voice concern about the influence of Catholic belief in politics as anti-Irish. Anti-Catholic sentiment in the UK remains a live issue in the north of Ireland, as well as in parts of Scotland, and this is certainly rooted in part in an anti-Irish sentiment. It does not, however, mean that we should take a soft approach to the Catholic Church as an institution. Anti-Catholic sentiment in this context is not in fact a product of people's well-intentioned critiques of the Catholic Church, but rather an entry point into an ethno-cultural identity. It is very possible to be a Catholic atheist in the Irish context. As the old joke goes, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? I'm an atheist. Aye, but are you a Catholic or a Protestant atheist? The Catholic Church is, after all, an incredibly reactionary institution, responsible for the effective enslavement of women in Ireland through the Magdalena laundries, selling the children of these women to America. In an institution which has long opposed women's and LGBT plus rights, with our current Pope widely hailed as progressive, denouncing transgender theory as evil. And it is an institution which has supported practically every occurrence of historical fascism at its height. There is a relatively common argument found in parts of the left that the feminist position to take is that even if we disagree with particular religious beliefs, we should not challenge them because people are persecuted around the world for their religious beliefs. This is nonsensical. The left stands to gain nothing from being soft on backwards views motivated by religion. As with all other forms of political ideas that people hold for whatever reason, we should have enough respect for them to tell them when they are wrong. In this case, Rebecca Long-Bailey is very, very wrong. Rebecca Long-Bailey, Abortion Rights and Disability During the Labour leadership contest, Rebecca Long-Bailey answered a questionnaire from the Catholic Church in her constituency, saying, amongst other things, that she personally disagreed with the different term limits for terminating a pregnancy when there is no disability, which is up to 24 weeks, compared to when there is up to full time. This, Whilst this alone does not make it clear she personally wants term limits to be removed altogether or for them to be reduced to 24 weeks across the board, in the context of her other comments about abortion in the questionnaire, the latter seems more likely. 
After the outcry over these comments coming to the public attention, Long Bailey clarified that this was only her personal opinion and signed a list of pledges unequivocally opposing stricter limits on abortion. However, posing freer abortions and equality for disabled people as opposed has been a growing phenomenon, both from disability rights activists and from anti-abortionists. In 2017, the Tory Lord who has brittle bone syndrome, introduced a private member's bill attempting to restrict abortion in the case of disability to 24 weeks. He said that at present the diagnosis of disability carries a death sentence and referred to a blatantly discriminatory eugenic agenda. In 2014, the Spanish Minister of Justice, Alberto Ruiz Gallardon, attempted to introduce a law restricting abortions to cases of rape up to 12 weeks, or grave risk to health up to 22 weeks, citing the right to life of people with disabilities. Similarly, the No campaign and the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment in Ireland prominently used images of children with Down syndrome on their billboards. Thankfully, both laws fell. Gallardon was forced to resign after large protests and the referendum passed. Down syndrome. Much of the thinking and debate surrounding abortion and disability has centred around Down syndrome. Iceland has been portrayed as carrying out mass abortions on fetuses with Down syndrome and their claims that no children with Down syndrome are now born in Iceland due to parents being encouraged to have abortions. In reality, the truth is more complicated. The tiny population and corresponding number of births per year means that the figures as represented by the World Health Organisation are misleading when read out of context and the birth rate of children with Down syndrome is only 10% below the average across the EU. Rather, it is merely the case that Iceland offers extensive prenatal tests and counselling for pregnant people. Prenatal tests and the information given to prospective parents has also been a topic of consternation. Previously, the main way of testing for genetic conditions such as Down syndrome was through amniocentesis, which is invasive and carries a risk of miscarriage. But recently, this has been replaced with non-invasive prenatal testing, which instead takes blood samples from the pregnant person. The campaign group Don't Screen Us Out has campaigned against NIPT as it enables more widespread testing therefore identifying more people if their fetus has Down syndrome, allowing them to terminate the pregnancy. Again, DSUO condemns this practice as a form of eugenics and seeks an overhaul of prenatal support provided by the NHS as a prerequisite to the implementation of NIPT. On the basis of claims by campaigners like DSUO, there do seem to be problems with the information given to expecting parents about disability. Value-laden terms such as risk rather than chance are used for the likelihood of having a child with a disability, and out-of-date information tinged with, tinged with ableism is often offered. For instance, parents are often told that children with Down syndrome have a very low life expectancy, despite that no longer being the case. Many of the calculations and decisions taken by society, the market and the state undervalue the lives of disabled people, reducing them to a burden. This is a thoroughly wrong-headed view, but unfortunately goes beyond a simple matter of attitude. No matter the dedication and love shown by parents, it, is, it, it often requires serious time, money and effort to care for disabled children. This is made difficult under a system which overworks and underpays people, whilst providing wholly inadequate welfare services. 
In a society which fully valued and provided for everyone in it, people could have much more freedom in how they plan their family. Decisions made by pregnant people about their own bodily autonomy or their family are not comparable to eugenics. These individual decisions are based on that person taking shape of their own life, whereas eugenics is a programme at the level of a society to consciously shape the genetic stock. The history of eugenics is one of taking away reproductive freedoms rather than granting them. At the most simple level, the only justification needed for an abortion should be that somebody who is pregnant wants to cease being pregnant. At no point should someone be forced to carry a pregnancy to term. The public debate over disability and abortion has largely taken place around the question of term limits. While these still exist, it is difficult to extract these discussions from the broader question of reproductive freedom. The disability activist Francis Ryan argues that thinking about around disability and pregnancy is often a black and white dichotomy, counterposing the tragedy of having a disabled child to the evil of having an abortion. It is our job to fight for a world where neither of these acts are stigmatised. Socialists should unequivocally defend the equality of disabled people and be unequivocally in favour of free access to abortion on demand. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 2020 On the Social Construction of Gender by Natalia Cassidy In the lead-up to the Workers' Liberty 2018 conference, a debate took place in relation to the trans document on the social construction of gender. The comrade who raised this debate withdrew reference to opposing the social construction of gender on the understanding that further debate on the question would follow. Thus far, this debate has not materialised. This article is an attempt to rekindle that debate. The principal question raised in the 2018 debate was whether or not we, as revolutionary socialists, should be opposed to the social construction of gender. That is to say, the ways in which society constructs differences between men and women in terms of expected behaviour, presentation and expected social roles. Many things in society are coded as either masculine or feminine, and we are all expected to conform. These norms are enforced by extremely high levels of social pressure, and as we know, when people break from their assigned gender, they are often met with violence. There is, in short, a widespread culture of homophobia and transphobia, and in many ways, the struggles against these oppressions, as well as the fight against sexism, imply an opposition to gender as a social construct. In my view, opposing the social construction of gender serves two purposes. Firstly, it clarifies our understanding of the negative impacts of the imposition of gender on all of us in society. Secondly, it serves to agitate. This is not to say we are expecting the social construction of gender something so deeply rooted in our social existence to simply disappear at will, just as we don't have that expectation of people's relationship to nationality or cultural identity. People's own identification with their gender is not realistic It's something that will disappear in the short or medium term. It is only something that might fade over a long time, even in a socialist society in which class has been eradicated. What then should we identify as what we might call a transitional demand on this issue? In the medium term, our goal should be, on a societal level, to have one's outwardly perceived sex difference have as little bearing on our lives as possible. I think that would be an opposition to the social construction of gender. The gendering of certain behaviours and traits has a negative effect on everyone in our society. 
Generally speaking, feminine traits serve to place women in a position subservient to men, although men also stand to lose from gendered behaviour. There is a crisis of mental health in the UK. This is exasperated by men in men by the social pressure and expectation of fulfilling masculine ideals of strength and resilience. The gendered perceptions of men takes on a particularly insidious manifestation when it comes to black men and boys. The perception of black men as fulfilling a heightened masculinity is in part what leads to such high levels of discrimination in terms of police violence, stop and search and media portrayal. It is hardly uncommon to see black teenagers reported as black males, whilst their white counterparts would be referred to as children. This serves to decontextualise the situation of black boys who get into trouble, while stressing the context of their white counterparts in the same situation. The social construction of gender affects us all and exacerbates other forms of oppression and discrimination in our society. We should certainly be opposed to it as a point of propaganda to highlight its damaging impacts, whilst understanding the clear constraints in terms of how we might express the demands programmatically. Despite the worthiness of opposing the social construction of gender, the practical implications of this opposition remain somewhat unclear. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 20, page 7. Babies, Brooders and the Abolition of Gender by Kelly Rogers How can men be mothers? How can some kid who isn't related to you be your child? She broke free and twisted away in irritation. It was part of women's long revolution when we were breaking all the old hierarchies. Finally, there was that one thing we had to give up too. The only power we ever had in return for no more power for anyone the original production, the power to give birth. Because as long as we were biologically enchained, we'd never be equal, and males would never be humanised to be loving and tender, so we all became mothers. An exchange between Connie and Lucien, Lucien in Women on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. Piercy's Women on the Edge of Time presents the reader with a femi- feminist utopia from the future, a world in which class, racism and gender have been eradicated and where the nuclear family has been brushed aside in favour of a setup best described by the old adage it takes a village to raise a child. Babies are grown in artificial wombs called brooders. Parents are universally referred to as mothers. If a mother that is sexed male wants to breastfeed, they can take hormones and make it possible. Children are assigned three mothers, but the community as a whole is expected to be responsible for a child's welfare and education due to a centuries-old ecological crisis and the breakdown of large cities. These communities are, in fact, literal villages. This is the world that Connie, an impoverished Latina woman from present-day New York, is thrown into. Despite utterly harrowing conditions in her own time, she initially reacts with disgust and horror at its strangeness. She believes, as so many believe, that there is a natural order to things, that motherhood is somehow inherent to people with the biological apparatus necessary to bear children. That to be a woman means to be caring and to be a man means to be strong, even violent. This is the all-pervasive cultural ideology that underpins everything, from macho bullying to rape and victim-blaming culture. Boys will be boys, so it's up to women to stay out of the way. 
Piercy's novel very persuasively demonstrates the harm of a gendered world underwritten by class inequality. Most starkly when Connie, back in our own time, is admitted into a mental institution for attacking a pimp who is violently trying to force her niece into having an abortion. But most of all it challenges us to think, is the abolition of gender and by proxy the nuclear family possible and what would it look like? The central premise of Women on the Edge of Time is that it is not possible to build a truly equal society without decoupling women from childbearing and childrearing. As socialist feminists, we believe that misogyny, homophobia and transphobia are rooted to a very largely large degree in the gender division of labour. The division of women, predominantly into reproductive care work, initially in the home but increasingly in low-paid caring professions, and men into the productive sphere. This gender division of labour rests at the heart of the capitalist mode of production. It in turn stems historically in part from the fact that it was women and only women who could bear children and breastfeed. Real life brooders aren't yet available to us and although billions are being invested into their development for the purpose of bringing very premature babies to term, not getting rid of pregnancy altogether, it seems unlikely they'll be made widely available anytime soon. And yet the argument Piercy makes is quite convincing. For as long as womanhood is so closely closely tied to motherhood and women are required to bear the onerous physically, mentally, socially responsibilities of pregnancy, childbirth and breastfeeding alone, can we really hope to entirely abolish the cultural baggage surrounding women and motherhood? Surely in such circumstances there will always be genders of a sort. All is not lost, however. For one thing, we should not accept, cannot accept, that motherhood need always be as physically and mentally taxing as it is now. In some senses, we've seen significant progress on that front already. Far fewer women die during pregnancy now than in times past. But the current era of cuts to NHS services, children's centres, nurseries and schools means that we're taking some big steps backwards. Most accounts of motherhood tell of severe loneliness and isolation a phenomenon that is only getting worse as cuts bite. And it is this isolation that makes it so difficult for women to resist their lot. If their only regular human interaction is with a small child and possibly a partner, then subverting gender and motherhood seems like a very tall order. We must set ourselves the task of not just halting these attacks and reversing cuts, though that's an important starting point but of revaluing care work and creating the conditions in which it is shared out in a more just and equitable way. Liberating carers of all genders. This will include a shorter working week, probably substantially so, so that everyone has more time to undertake caring responsibilities, whether for their own children or for other members of their community. Universally universally available flexible working hours and expanded maternity and paternity leave. Number two, high pay for care work, which in turn implies high union density among care workers and strong militant trade unions alive to questions of feminism and gender depression. Three, community-centred care networks, not necessarily based around heterosexual nuclear families. For many, fa- for many, family networks don't exist or cannot provide the support needed, necessary, for raising children. And even if they could, What is there to suggest that kinship networks are innately better equipped for the task than communities based on solidarity and comradeship? 
Redistributing care work would also mean eliminating the gender coding of caregiving activities so that men feel able to perform them too, free of social stigma, and women are free to give them up without feeling like they're failing. And so we're faced with a chicken and egg style problem. How do we fight for and build a society that overthrows the gender division of labour without deconstructing gender? And how can we deconstruct gender without changing the material reality that underpins people's gendered identities? In her article, After the Family Wage, a post-industrial thought experiment, 1994, Nancy Fraser argues, The trick is to imagine a social world in which citizens' lives integrate wage earning, caregiving, community activism, political participation and involvement in the associational life of civil society, while also leaving time for some fun. This world is not likely to come into being in the immediate future, but it is the only imaginable post-industrial world that promises true gender justice, and unless we are guided by this vision now, we will never get any closer to achieving it. The point is that although gender is a social construct, it is not something that can simply be dismantled in our own heads. We cannot just think queerly and hope that our, that our whole social order buckles at the knees, nor should we sit and wait for a magnificent technological innovation like brooders to do the work for us. Rather, through the act of struggling against low pay and cuts to our services, against the public-private divide and archaic expectations of motherhood and family, we will tap away at the extreme notions of masculinity and femininity, so widely misunderstood as natural. But we must understand as we do so that we are aiming for not just saving this or that service or winning this or that strike, but a wholesale revolution against gender and everything that it stands for. Sexist Bastards by Hannah Thompson Some friends and I decided to organise a meeting in Sheffield on sexism at work through the local Workers' Liberty branch. We had bonded over our experience of being women training or having worked in men's jobs and between us we built up a small network of women engineers and construction workers meeting occasionally to drink and talk. I think we all considered ourselves pretty thick-skinned and hard-working. Most people in the group I'd met had a middle-class undergraduate background. We were also reasonably familiar with leftist politics and ideas. At the universities in Sheffield, sexism is present, but it seems to be on the back foot. The number of women student engineers, for example, is growing. But in the FE colleges and the workplaces, we were shocked at the level of prejudices that were commonplace. We decided to run the meeting along the lines of a consciousness-raising session from the feminist traditions of the 60s and 70s. It was initially uncomfortable. My experience of meetings containing nothing but emotions and anecdotes has not always been positive. I went to a Trans 101 NUS meeting years ago where a much older woman came in to interrupt the chair, talk at great length about prejudice and trauma and cry, leaving the chair and, and attendants speechless. On the other hand, some faction fights in the student movement have abused the radical sincerity of consciousness raising to manipulate and score points off each other, opening a door for a backlash. There was also concern the concern we all had that our resilience and understanding of our position in male-dominated workplaces would be questioned if we talked about our experience, or that making events public would amplify the sexism into something more threatening, especially in our own heads. A friend who had complained of harassment to friends at work hadn't, hadn't been believed, and I have found that many colleagues, male and female, were genuinely convinced I had been given a job to meet a politically correct quota. 
all of us were knocked sideways when we discovered we had no common understanding from fellow workers. During the public meeting, we took it in turns to tell our stories. A common theme in construction and engineering is a feeling of physical weakness. Having tools taken off us, jobs reallocated or being unfairly criticised. In construction, using the toilets poses problems as women can't just pee in a hedge and clients' bathrooms are off limits if you're covered in dust. We'd been involved in chauvinist conversations about women where men either ignored our presence or pretended we were on their side. We'd been humiliated and insulted, then told to be tougher, or that we were wrong-headed. We'd not been believed when we spoke out. In the meeting discussion, we talked about culture clash and inner voices. The backlash against fights for liberation demonstrates how effectively bigotry divides us. The bad ideas expressed in good faith are not intended to hurt, but are in some ways worse than maliciousness, because they are sincerely believed. If everyone at work genuinely thinks that you are weak, you can begin to see yourself as weak, or even deluded. Anyone who is different to the predominant culture becomes exhausted, second-guessing, or just avoiding their colleagues. A male friend at my college once remarked on the racism and homophobia among the students that it was just ignorance, that education can sort us out. To an extent, I think this is true, but accepting that as the total explanation is intellectual snobbery. We end up quoting statistics and playing political fact tennis when 99% of the debate is about emotion and experience. In their book about inequality, Wilkinson and Pickett talk about the connection between bigotry and inequality, and their ideas have stuck with me. Quote, Human group conflict Conflicts such as racism and sexism stem from the way in which inequality gives rise to individual and institutional discrimination and the degree to which people are complicit or resistant to some social groups being dominant over others. In other words, inequality creates shame and humiliation and bigotry is a reaction to that. This is especially so in the workplace where battles for status are loaded onto us by capitalism unless we fight them with better ideas and try to overhaul the way society works. Finally, we considered if the culture around sexism had changed in the UK for good, or if we would have to consider going back to basics as environment and environmental and economic recession bed in, and the right wing wins victory after victory. We have no answers yet, but we'll keep talking.